Well, we're starting to read Romans, and here in uh, in Romans one and two, we obviously have the the start of this this great uh, this great letter, and it is an exposition of of the gospel, and yet. <laughs> I think it, most expositions I've heard of it just get so bogged down in abstractions, in what you might call theology. And it's, uh, it's very densely written. And it's not surprising, in a sense, that people do get bogged down in uh, sort of academic and abstract exposition, because one is dealing here with some of the most profound issues, let's say, in the whole, in the whole cosmos. Now, I'm not a great fan of trying to break down letters of Paul into sections as you, you get in a lot of uh, expositions uh, saying this is the first bit then there's the next bit and this bit and that bit um, I'm not sure that when the writers sat down to write they actually had that in mind I think it's interpreters who have uh, as it were tried to force a structure onto uh, books of the Bible which I'm not sure was intended but with Romans, it seems to me that there is a very definite structure. In these first eight chapters, you have, if I think, some of uh, the most sort of abstract, academic, theological material that we have in, in the whole Bible. And yet, it's not just doctrine or theology, whichever word you want to use for, it, uh, for the sake of it. There's a lot of connections between this purely doctrinal section in chapters 1 to 8 and the practical section, which goes from chapter 12 uh, to the end in, in chapter 16. All that purely practical exhortation that you've got there in 12 to 16 is full of allusion, uh, of words which are, for example, not found anywhere else apart from in Romans 1 to 8 or in Romans 12 to 16. Uh, you, you've got all these allusions all the way, all the way through. So... I think it is so that chapters 1 to 8 is a, a, an absolutely uh, theoretical exposition of the gospel, but it doesn't stay there. He, why is he doing this? It's in order to bring about a basis for the practical exhortation that they need there in the Ecclesia in, in Rome. And then in between the doctrinal section and the practical section, you've got chapters 9 to 11 which are talking about Israel and I think that is because Israel are a parade example of God's grace which is the great theme of Romans 1 to 8 of salvation by grace and not by our works and of the, uh, the most condemned sinner having the opportunity of salvation in, in the Lord Jesus. And that's the point of that uh, interlude that you have about Israel from chapters 9 to 11. That that is exemplifying the truth in practice of what he's been teaching in Romans 1 to 8 about grace, uh, and then for all of us the practical exhortations from chapters 12 to 16. And just to, uh, just to sort of demonstrate that a little bit, uh, chapter 1 verse 11 that, that we've just read he says I'm, I'm coming to see you uh, to the end that you may be established and yet this ties up with, with what's at the very end of the, the letter chapter 16 verse 25 he asks God to establish you according to my gospel or my, the gospel that I have preached Likewise, chapter 16, verse 19, your obedience to the gospel is come abroad unto all men. 
And he says here in Romans 1 verse 8, Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. He talks about how the gospel is preached for the obedience to the faith. In chapter 1 verse 5, you've got the same in 16 verse 26. And so, uh, so we could go on. The point is that doctrine or understanding the theory uh, is the basis for the radical transformation of human life and practice. That's why when he starts the practical section in 12 verse 1, he says, I beseech you therefore... And what's the referent for, for therefore? Well, it seems to me that it's all that he said previously in the letter. But all that doctrine, if you like, all that theory, is to be harnessed, as I say, for the radical transformation of human life in practice. Now, this then is the power of doctrine. This is why it matters what you believe. Because if you have no, uh, no content to your faith, then how is that going to radically transform you? If the gospel is simply believe in Jesus, uh, literally, those three words, um, then, okay, but there must be content in that. And as soon as we recognize that faith is belief, it means belief in something. And that, of course, pushes the question further back, well, well faith or belief in what? If you say, oh, well, belief in Jesus, what do you mean? By, by Jesus. What meaning is there in those words? And I, I say this because in this uh, postmodern world in, in which we're living, there is the sense that any kind of uh, theory, any kind of uh, serious attention to the, to the Bible, to, to doctrine, to uh, what, what I suppose I would call theology, but I, I use the word in the, in the purest uh, sense of it, um, that that is all just academic, that that's all, uh, that's all just for those who are interested in it, and it's all bunk kind of thing. But in the same way as history is not bunk, if one learns from history, so, so it is, I think, with all Paul's teaching here uh, about, the, uh, about the, the doctrines of the gospel. Now, I'd like to just point out that Paul, throughout this letter, is seeking to... Uh, diminish the distance which there is between reader and writer. Don't forget they had not met him in Rome. He's writing to an ecclesia that he's unknown to. And so I think it is with, with us in a sense, we've never met Paul. And yet he, under inspiration, tries to narrow that distance that there is between him there and, and us today. Now, he starts off in chapter 1, verse 1, saying that he is a servant of Jesus Christ who has been called to be an apostle, who has been separated unto the gospel of God. And then he says in verse 6, You are also the called of Jesus Christ. It's as if he's saying that, look, my essential calling and response to, to the gospel is a pattern for you, and he's all the way through all his letters holding himself up as some kind of model to, to his readers. In other words, that what happened to him on the Damascus Road, as he says in 2 Corinthians, the light of God's glory has also shined in your hearts to give the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And it's an interesting study which we, we've done before when we looked at his Damascus Road conversion in Acts to just see how many times he alludes to that in his later writing 
and applies that language to every one of us. So it's not that, ah, yeah, that was Paul, and that was Jesus. You know, the whole point of the gospel is that it focuses it right up front on us, that we also have received the same gospel, but to us was the gospel preached as it was to Israel in the wilderness, as it was to Paul. Now, verse 10, I, I, I do love that. Um, maybe slightly out of context, but uh, I, I just want to make the point there in verse 10 that he prays to be able to, to come to the Romans, and he prays for a prosperous journey. And just think how that prayer was answered. He was sitting in Corinth, it seems, as he wrote this. Uh, thinking maybe he was just going to hoot over to, uh, to Rome. The answer would involve many months of imprisonment in Jerusalem in order to get him to Rome. A shipwreck that nearly killed him. That led to an ecclesia in, in Malta. Nearly being killed of the Jews. Being nearly pulled apart, literally by the limbs, by an angry mob in Jerusalem, before he got to Rome. So then, we pray for things, and yes, God hears, but the process of the answer can be pretty awful, humanly speaking. Then in verse 13, he says that um, many times he had wanted to come to them, but he says that he was hindered, he had been hindered so far. In Acts 16, verse 6, that word is translated forbid, where Paul says he was forbidden to preach the word in Asia. But it seems to me that Paul was in such open dialogue, as I would put it, with, uh, with God and with Jesus, that, okay, they forbade him, for example, to uh, preach in Asia, but he still did it. The Holy Spirit witnessed to him in so many cities, basically not to go to Jerusalem, but he still did. And it's not that he was disobedient I think it's rather like Moses not simply accepting what God said when he said that he's going to destroy Israel and make of Moses a greater nation or the people of Nineveh when they heard that in 40 days they were going to be destroyed then just passively say oh yeah well so it is Ishallah, as the, uh, the Muslims say that uh, well so may the will of God be done we are not called in an Islamic sense to uh, submit, that's what Islam means, submission, uh, necessarily to God's will. There is, all the way through the Bible, and Paul is a great example of this, that there is the possibility of dialogue with God. And prayer is, in that sense, dialogue. The prophets are great examples of this. Now, verse 14 then, he says that I am a debtor to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. In what sense was Paul and all of us in debt to other people? The language of, of debt is really appropriate to our relationship to the Lord Jesus, that he died for us, and we are internally indebted to him. And as we reflect upon the cross, which is what we're here today to do, and, and the simple fact that he died for me, the more you think upon that, it elicits in us, I think, an upwelling of, of pure gratitude towards him, an awkwardness as we realize that this man loved me more than I shall ever love him, and a sense of unpayable debt, of real debt, a debt infinite and never to be forgotten. 
And yet he says here that his debt is to preach to Greeks and barbarians. Now, what I think that is uh, implying is that the debt we feel to Jesus personally becomes, how to say, kind of transmuted, let's put it like that, into a debt to people, to preach to all humanity. Later on, and I said that the uh, theological part of Romans is directly connected all the way through with the practical part. He says in Romans 13, verse 8, using the same word, he says, "Don't owe man, uh, owe no man, uh, nothing. Don't be in debt. Apart from, to love one another." So the debt is to love others, and here the debt is to preach the gospel. So therefore, one form of love is in the end to spiritually care and be concerned for other people and to help them towards God's kingdom. That is that debt which we have, and he felt that very much. And he says that he, ha he feels a debt to the Greeks and to the barbarians even. And he wrote this, as I say, sitting in, uh, in cultured Corinth, which was uh, Greek uh, to the end, and he feels this debt to preach to the barbarians. And you know, God, I think, noticed that. And uh, he also noticed Paul's prayer for a prosperous journey to Rome. So what did he do? He shipwrecked him on Malta. And that word for barbarians occurs only four other times in the New Testament, and two of them are in describing the kind of people that Paul met on Malta, who he converted. That's Acts 28, verses 2 and 4. Now, that zooms right up to you and me, because we all feel within our conscience, I'm sure, that we are not preaching as we ought to, that we are not making that witness that we would like to. We feel that debt, and yet what do we do about it? And God, God knows that, and he hears our prayers, and he, he will bring situations into your life, he will bring people across your path, to whom you can, as it were, pay your debt. And I pray every day that God will give me meetings with the right people. And I encourage you to do the same. Now, he goes on in, uh, in verse 16, still in this uh, theme of, of preaching the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He is not ashamed of that gospel. Well, as you know, I'm of the opinion that Paul is continually alluding back to the gospel records. Uh, that I have put in, uh, in my, my book about Paul, that uh, I've listed them there, that on average, once every three verses, Paul is alluding back to the gospels. And it's probably far greater than that. That's just what I, I've managed to, uh, to perceive. And here, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, I think the allusion is to Mark 8:38, Whoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. So then Paul says that he is not ashamed of the, the gospel of Christ and his words. Now, he is not ashamed and yet, it's just worth uh, following through that idea of, of being uh, ashamed. Because Paul also uses this, this word uh, to talk about um, the shame of 
the rejected and of being unashamed before the presence of God's glory in the last day and he says actually a number of times particularly when he comes to die in the second of Timothy which is his, his last letter that's his swan song really I think um, about how he is not ashamed it was obviously a, a big thing with him so he says to Timothy uh, chapter 1 verse 12 I suffer all these various things he says for the sake of my preaching of the gospel nevertheless I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and so he says to Timothy you also don't be ashamed verse 8 of 2 Timothy 1 of the testimony or the preaching about our Lord Jesus and he commends the house of Onesiphorus who were not ashamed of Paul's chain of his imprisonment for the sake of the gospel so then this being unashamed how awful it, it is at times when it kind of comes out that uh, we are Christians I hope it doesn't happen very often but we can probably think of times in our lives when it has happened and we have been ashamed we've been embarrassed that whoops I got busted I got revealed as a Christian like uh, you go to church don't you somebody asks in the middle of maybe an inappropriate conversation or joke or whatever and oh whoops um, th that should not be the case who we are in our heart is who we should be psychologists would talk about the real self and the shadow self now that should not be the case with us who we are in our heart is who we should show ourselves to be no posturing no image uh, no shadow self that we're we're projecting as it were on the stage upon which we walk there, there should be that direct uh, connection between who we are in ourselves and who we show ourselves to be I don't mean that by that you don't have your secrets having uh, a, a secret uh, personal personality as it were is is part of being human and of a healthy humanity um, and yet it is not the same as hypocrisy it is not the same as being one thing to one person and somebody else to somebody else it is the rejected who will be ashamed in the last day and one way I think that we set ourselves on that path to being unashamed is through the, the practice of preaching now preaching is in many ways for our benefit because God can save who he wants as he wants and God requires not help from man and that, that is really the case but God is able to work through us and he, he chooses to work through us I think for our benefit and this whole process of having to I think verbalize at times in so many words to put in words what we actually believe I think is, is healthy uh, for us and it helps us to nail our colors to the mast and Paul is this great example of that that he was unashamed that there was this congruence between who he really was in his heart somebody who was really had a heart for God and for the Lord Jesus uh, there was a congruence between that and the image that he cut there was no as I say posturing there was no appearance one way uh, to some people and then to something else to somebody else so then he starts to move on 
now, with that introduction about the nature of the gospel, to actually talk about uh, what the bottom line is in the gospel. And he, all the way through Romans 1 to 8, from here onwards really, about verse 17 onwards, he is using the language of the courtroom. And of course this is all metaphor, let's just get that, it's not to be pushed literally, but that is the image which he chooses to develop, and let's just uh, bear, that mind, uh, bear that in mind. And so he says in verse 17 that in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness given by God, as it is written, the just or the justified shall live, live eternally by their faith. Now, what he's saying is that righteousness, a being declared right, when we are in fact wrong and sinners, is what is done by God. That that is the bottom line of the whole thing. And he says that we are justified by faith. And this is going to carry on and develop, uh, not by works. By our simple belief in the fact that God has said he will count us righteous. That he will declare us as in the right, as we stand, as it were, before his judgment, as sinners. But he's quoting there from Habakkuk 2 verse 4, which is uh, a kind of having a go at human pride. Behold, his, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. In other words, I think what Habakkuk is saying is that the person who is living in the hope of eternity, justified by faith, will not be puffed up. He he will be humble. And that is, again, the practical point of this. That if it was by works, then, as Paul also says, if it were by works, then people could boast. But it is not of works, lest any man should boast. So then, the whole purpose of the gospel is to humble us, And the way God has, if you like, worked it out mechanically, the whole wonderful schema of the whole thing, is to promote humility. And that really should be our feeling, I think, coming away from a reflection on the fact that the Lord died for me. Now, he goes on then in in chapter 1 to reel off this awful list of sins, and he he talks in uh, embarrassing detail about lesbians and homosexuals and how God is confirming these people and the wicked way in which they choose to go and yeah, you know, he, he has a, a swipe at about, about everything but he's uh, certainly into the, uh, the grosser kind of sins and why? Now don't forget, we are living in a generation that is awash with uh, pornography, that is awash with uh, sexual illusion and uh, cheap shots and and the rest of it. Uh, And uh, for us, maybe it's it's kind of strange that uh, Paul should use this kind of language. Now if it's strange for us, living in this generation, it was absolutely shocking, I believe, for the people who first read this. Like, what are you on about, Paul? You're talking about lesbos and queer old dears and, and the rest of it. Look, well, Paul, I want to read about the gospel. I want to read all this stuff. And why do you take so many verses to go through all this? What's his point? Well, 
He's building up, of course, an argument which has not yet been fully developed. You'd have to read Romans 1 to 8 right through in one go to, to see where he's going, I think. He's going through all these sins in order to convict us of our sinfulness, to bring us to stand, as it were, before the judgment throne of God and his Son, and to feel condemned. To know that we are condemned, that we are no better than any of these people. And then we are declared right by the advocate that we have. And because of what he did on the cross, therefore, actually, we who are in him are counted as if we are him. And therefore, we're seen as as good as him. And the identity achieved between us and him through baptism into Christ, which is what he talks about, of course, in chapter 6, is so great that we are counted as if we are him, and therefore there's no witness against us. The uh, counsel for the defense, uh, sorry, the, 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 uh, the prosecutor has gone. He's not to be found, according to Romans 8. There are no witnesses anymore against us in the witness box because we are Jesus. And we are declared not only right, but perfect. And then Romans 8 starts to talk about very internal things, starting in chapter 7. But the, the, the conclusion of the section starts talking about the Spirit of God working in human hearts. And the Spirit of Christ, specifically. And of how Christ is in us. Now, how's that relevant? Well, how it's relevant is that I think what he's saying is that who we are counted as by status, we should try to become in our own minds. And not only so, but God and the Lord Jesus, who have counted us by status as being in Christ, will try to, if you like, psychologically alter us, to work with us, to change us, to be like the one, that is Jesus, who we are counted as being. And so that's why he he comes to the end of it all just glorying uh, that we who are sinners have been counted right and that we therefore can be unashamed. Now that's uh, that's an outline of 1 to 8. But just back here in in Romans 1 and 2, he's building up this attempt to convert us from our sort of uh, arrogance and from our sense that, yeah, yeah, sure, I'm a sinner, but he's kind of playing a game, I think, with with his reader's response, as he often does when he says things like, somebody will say this, but, you stupid man, don't you know this or that? He does it in Romans 6, he does it in 1 Corinthians 15, where he kind of, he guesses his reader's response to what he's saying about the resurrection. And I think he's doing the same here, that he goes through all this great big thing about lesbos and queer ideas, knowing full well that the reaction of each of us is going to be, yes, I'm a sinner, but I don't do that. And that's disgusting. And then, you know, he turns the whole game against us. That you are inexcusable chapter 2 verse 1 whosoever you are that judgest for as soon as you condemn them for doing that you condemn yourself because you that judges do the same 
things. Now, what exactly that means, whether he's saying that by condemning somebody for a sin, seeing that you uh, can't take the final judgment, therefore God counts you as if you did the very thing that you, uh, you condemned, I don't know. Or I think I would rather run with the interpretation that he's saying, you that judges do the same things, I think we have to read in an ellipsis there, as you often do in Paul's writings. Uh, you that judges, you do the same things in essence. And there you are, full of sort of uh, indignation about that's disgusting. Um, you know, I, uh, I may be a sinner, but I don't do that. That's disgusting. Bang. Yes, you do and you're arrogant, and you're even worse that you condemn other people and think they're disgusting, what about you? And so he, he does this all the way through, to, to come through as he does uh, really um, all through chapter 2 and chapter 3 that we are all sinners. Uh, and not only little ones, but serious ones. And he, he has to do that in order to to get us to that point by the end of Romans 8 where we're like, wow, I have been saved by his grace. And that really is, I think, the essence of what we're doing in Breaking Bread. That here we have two apparently opposed strands of, of thought in our minds that on one hand, wow, he did what he did for me. I could not have done that. And somehow by reflecting upon him there, we are convinced and convicted of our own failure. And yet, on the other strand of thought is, well, he did this for me, and really, it really happened. It's all for real, and the bread and wine sort of make it all come real again, in, in a sort of smaller, sort of physical way. Um, wow, this is for real. This really happened on a, a day in April on a Friday afternoon, 2,000 years ago, on a hill just outside Jerusalem. This really happened. And, you know, those two uh, thoughts come together. That, it's like baptism, the death and the rising again. The conviction of sin, and yet also the confidence that because of what he has done, wow, I will be there. But you can't get to that wonderful uh, point without being genuinely convicted of your sin. So then, let him there, I mean on the cross, uh, convict you, and let him also give you that comfort and that joy.